This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Every year, on March 1st, the disability community comes together to remember the victims of filicide, people with disabilities murdered by their family members. Vigils are organized by the disability community and held on the day of mourning in cities around the world. And whether it's the media coverage or the courts, it feels like disabled people are being forgotten, with the issue of filicide routinely downplayed. By remembering the disabled people who are now no longer with us, we can start to advocate for the value of disabled lives. It feels like if you are quote-unquote disabled, your very existence is an act of resistance. Today, we discuss the annual Disability Day of Mourning. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juritha Gupta. Today, we're getting into another heavy topic on the program. Although it's a difficult topic, it is nevertheless a necessary conversation. I said in the opening to the show that if you're a person with a disability, sometimes it can feel like your very existence can be an act of resistance. And I thought to myself, this is bound to be confusing for some people. It was confusing for me and I wrote it. But what I was really trying to get at is the idea that there's been a long history of practices which have tried to eliminate and eradicate people with disabilities. We've looked at many practices around eugenics which have looked to selectively wipe out people with disabilities. We've heard about people with disabilities being institutionalized. So there is a long and terrible history of people with disabilities not just being rendered invisible, but being made to disappear. And I'd like to think that now things are changing, that attitudes are evolving, that technology is progressing, it is now more likely than ever that if you are a person with a disability, you can enjoy a relatively good quality of life, but there are many challenges. And many of those challenges persist around the value assigned to the lives of people with disabilities. And so today, my guest is Stephanie Woodworth. She is an attorney and a disability rights advocate. She leads an organization called Disability Details, which offers in-depth information about disability rights, disability access, and disability life. Stephanie, being a longtime advocate and has a police record to show for it, is someone who can really get into this issue of the Disability Day of Mourning with us to discuss that specifically. She joins us on the program today. Stephanie, welcome to The Pulse. Thank you so much for having me. I got into this very briefly, but what is the Disability Day of Mourning? Can you expand on that for us? So the Disability Day of Mourning is a day on March 1st when the disability community gets together to have public displays of mourning for people with disabilities who have been murdered by their families, caregivers, and others who are often not recognized by the media, by their own families, by our court systems. Um, We often gloss over the murders of disabled people, and that is why the Disability Day of Mourning is so important to the disability community, uh, because we recognize that these are real people who were very much murdered 
um, and murdered oftentimes because of their disabilities. And it's important to say that out loud. It's important to recognize the actual violence that is happening to our community. Um, and it happens every year. Um, and in many of these events, we read names aloud of hundreds of people um, that are murdered every year. When we talk about filicide, we are talking specifically about the murder of disabled people by their family members. How is filicide different from hate crimes towards people with disabilities? Because we have talked about that on the program, and there must be some overlap, but also ways in which the two concepts are different. Right. So, um, well, I guess the lawyer in me wants to specify that hate crimes are defined differently in each region um, or municipality or state. But the individual in me also clarifies that hate crimes sometimes go specifically to show that there's a hatred against a person with a disability, and that is why the crime is happening. And I I firmly believe that that is an underlying factor in a lot of the filicides that we see. But oftentimes we see the media and courts spin the story to give sympathy mm-hmm. to the family members that kill the disabled person to say that, well, it must have been so hard mm-hmm. to be the family member of this disabled person. So I could see how they got burnt out and killed this person. And that is where the difference lies often, is not in the actual underlying cause that I still believe there is a hatred at some point because that led you to kill a disabled person, but rather the way society spins it to be sympathetic. Mm -hmm. We will revisit this issue around the media coverage and the treatment of filicide in the courts in just a few minutes, but I wanted to ask you as well about why March 1st was selected as the day that these vigils are held that we recognize the day of mourning. Would you know a specific reason why March 1st was chosen? You know, I can't tell you why specifically March 1st. Um, I would encourage everybody to look at disability-memorial.org, which Mm -hmm. is where um, you see a lot of Disability Day of Mourning materials all collected in one space. I I guess I never looked into the specific meaning behind March 1st. We were too busy just trying to recognize all of our lost siblings that have been murdered by their family members. Mm -hmm. Communities around the world have lent meaning to that day by gathering and by reading out names and by remembering the, the lives that were lost. When we think about the people who are predominantly the victims of filicide, you made the point that Often it is owing to the person's disability that they were targeted in this fashion. Do you know, Stephanie, if people with certain types of disabilities, I'm thinking about intellectual or developmental disabilities, for instance, are more likely to be susceptible to filicide? There are certainly statistics that show that people with developmental or intellectual disabilities are more likely to be victims of violent crimes, which can lead to filicide. But there are also statistics to show that any person with any disability is more likely than a non-disabled person 
to be a victim of a violent crime. So all people with disabilities are likely to be more likely to be victims of violent crimes, but then of people with disabilities who are all more likely within the subsect, people with developmental disabilities are even higher likelihood. And then people with intersectional um, identities, so people Mm -hmm. who identify as more than one race, face an even higher likelihood. Mm -hmm. And this movement to recognize and give space to the lives and the stories of the victims of filicide, this movement has really taken off because I think back to my own experience. I've been, I think, fairly involved with the disability community, and I don't think anyone was talking about this even 10 years ago. So what sort of progress have we made within the community to recognize people with disabilities who have been the victims of filicide? I think that we've made a lot of progress. I would like to give um, some great credit to the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, who really did a lot of work to push this into the mainstream and say, this is not okay. We saw they took the lead on this when the media was saying it was okay that a mother had drowned her two autistic children in the bathtub Mm. because she was just overwhelmed. And the court system just really let her go. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no significant charges against her. There was no jail time. And our community was heartbroken around this. How can you just say, well, oh, she's overwhelmed. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, If these were non-disabled children, there would be outrage. But if it's disabled children, then it's an overwhelmed mom. All moms get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Why is it moms of disabled children can murder their children? So we've seen in the past 10 years, our disability community has really gone to the forefront um, and confronted the media and confronted the court system and confronted our prosecutors and said, Mm -hmm. like, you can't just let these crimes go. You can't just say, well, let's give them a pass. So I'm really proud that the disability community is standing up for our rights and for our lives because we can't just let it go. And I think the rise of social media has really helped with that because we're able to show that this is a really worldwide problem. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just happen one time in your community. It is happening all over the world. And people are getting away with it all over the world. We are speaking to Stephanie Woodworth, with the um, who is the a disability rights advocate and attorney, talking to us about the Disability Day of Mourning. And you sort of alluded to the fact several times already that the media is skewed in its coverage, the courts are not dealing with the situation properly, and that generally uh, perpetrators are getting off with either lighter sentences or no sentences whatsoever. Why? I think we genuinely devalue the lives of disabled people. And we cannot fathom that people with disabilities have lives worth living. I think back to um, when I was growing up, I have um, a physical disability that is very similar to the physical disability that Tracy Latimer has. Um, And that was a really big case that happened in Canada, but was quite visible in the U.S. So I grew up watching on TV all of these 
this news coverage about a man who killed his daughter with cerebral palsy. Mm. And he said he did it because he loved her. That's Tracy Latimer in Canada and her father, Robert Latimer. It was one of the cases I was actually going to talk to you about because it's so indicative of the sympathy for Robert Latimer. And no one really even talks about Tracy Latimer. And so much of the conversation about Tracy becomes about Tracy's disability. And I wonder if those conversations about the quote-unquote victims and how the disability of the victim is the only thing that comes into play, whether those conversations by their very nature become reductive because we don't investigate further or we don't look deeper and we don't probe and ask some of those more uh, meaningful questions about what might have been going on there. I think that it certainly can cause a lot more harm um, because we do reduce it to just the disability So we don't know what further damage could be going on and the further damage that is being caused in the community. So I know that growing up, not only did I see this on television, but I heard my mother and her friends talking about this. So imagine me as a nine-year-old listening to my mom's friends saying, well, I could understand why he did it. She must have been such a burden. It must be so hard raising a child like that. And me hearing that, knowing that I am a child like that and wondering if my mom is going to murder me tomorrow. Or just wondering, am I a burden? Yeah. Am I a burden? And, and what does that do to the entire disability community and the internalized ableism that we then start to experience? Mm -hmm. But then, um, just about four years ago, we had a similar situation here in Rochester, New York, where a man took his daughter, his adult daughter, Um, with a disability, um, physical disability, I believe she was also nonverbal, to the backyard, shot her and shot himself. The police um, came and made a statement about how the father must have had such a hard time caring for his disabled daughter. The moment you make that statement to the world, you completely rule out the idea that Perhaps he was assaulting his own daughter, and she was going to come forward. Maybe that's why he took her to the backyard and killed her and killed himself. Perhaps there was other nefarious activities happening. But instead, you immediately reduced it to her disability, and that is why a father killed his daughter. And even if that is why, that is not okay. Mm -hmm. But what if that's not why, and you immediately reduced it to that? Exactly. Stephanie, you've done a really good job of getting into the weeds with a difficult issue, laying out some of the anecdotes and giving us an overview of what the issues are. The other piece of this that I think about is that many countries, Canada included, are looking at legalizing medically assisted death. And that is something that I know that many disability rights organizations have been very concerned about because it's feeding into this notion that People with disabilities are told in not so many ways, big and small, that you're a burden and there could be a degree of coercion from family members. So when we consider it fill aside, what are some of the concerns? I know you wrote an article about this, but what are some of the concerns that you have with the greater availability of medically assisted death? I think some of the same concerns that the larger disability community has are the concerns that I have that we are already devalue Mm -hmm. the lives of people with disabilities. And we already have a system that says it's illegal to kill disabled people. And when we kill disabled people right now, 
the murderers are not held accountable. Mm-hmm. So when you legalize assisted suicide, that leaves room for abuse. It leaves room for coercion that won't be investigated. Mm-hmm. So when murders that should be investigated and held fully accountable aren't being right now, then when things are legalized that could lead to nefarious things happening behind a law that makes it look okay, mm-hmm. will things be investigated if it was not wanted, if someone was coerced? And even if it is investigated, that doesn't bring the person back to life. One of the things that comes up in this discussion about medically-assisted suicide and medically-assisted death is the consent of the person. And many people with disabilities, we talked previously about people with intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities, may be seen as incapable of providing consent. And so it's really the person with power of attorney or the caregiver that has a lot of power to make life and death, literally life and death decisions about somebody else. What sort of checks and balances need to be put in place to ensure that family members and other caregivers don't abuse the system? Well, I don't think that there are any checks or balances that can be put in place. And I think every disability organization that's opposed to assisted suicide will tell you that there are no checks or balances that can be put in place. Um, And that's why assisted suicide shouldn't be legalized. It's as simple as that, because when we've seen states like Oregon try to create checks and balances, such as having other doctors be able to give you uh, the prescription, people have gone to doctors that have known them for less than three weeks Mm -hmm. um, after their family members have taken them there. So their doctor that has known them their entire life says, no, I don't think this is right for you. But then their daughter takes them to a new doctor that has known them for significantly less time. And that doctor says, yeah, this seems like perfect for you. Even though their daughter is in the room and even though case notes say that their daughter may be influencing this decision. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if there are no safeguards, then I want to bring this back to talking about filicide, because if we can start to erase the profile of the issue of filicide, will it, do you think, have the effect of getting people to take a sober second look at medically assisted suicide? Because a lot of the, the dominant discourse around medically assisted suicide has to do with giving people choice, having dignity in death, making sure that people can make some decisions about when they go and that they're not dealing with prolonged illness or suffering. And so do you think when we start to look at these issues through the lens of filicide and we put that into context, it might publicly allow us to revisit the conversation in a, in a well-rounded way? I think that when we start looking at disabled people as dignified people and recognizing that disability doesn't mean undignified and disability mm-hmm. is not equivalent to suffering, then we can start having a conversation that can be deeper, a conversation that can bring us all to the table that is more understanding. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at the top reasons that people report wanting assisted suicide, pain is not one of the top five reasons. They're all disability-related reasons. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about why living with a disability is still a life very much worth living. The voice that you're listening to is Stephanie Woodward, a disability rights advocate and attorney. We're discussing the Disability Day of Mourning. 
Just a few minutes ago, you said we need to have people at the table, and that's where I want to take the conversation. We've talked about the interactions with the police. We've talked about the interaction with uh, with the medical system. We've also talked about judges and lawyers needing to show greater awareness and sensitivity of the issue of filicide when they're making rulings and decisions. How do we ensure that all of these people, and I'm sure this is not an exhaustive list by any means, uh, how do we ensure that all of these people become stakeholders in the conversation so that we can try to find constructive solutions? I think we need to start with having these conversations more. We need to have conversations like this more. We can't have these conversations just when somebody dies. Mm -hmm. We have to have conversations about ableism, about hate, about filicide now, because it doesn't start with the murder. It starts with ideas that disabled people are burdens. Mm -hmm. It starts with the ideas that it's too much or that their lives are not as valuable. Mm. So we need to start with looking at these misconceptions, these stereotypes. We need to start with having disabled people represented in the media in positive ways so that society can understand that disability does not mean deficit. It does not mean bad. It doesn't mean life not worth living. Mm -hmm. We need to start having these conversations that... It's not romantic to kill disabled people. When you see a murder-suicide where a man kills his wife who has Alzheimer's and then he kills himself, you don't publish that as that is so romantic that they wanted to die together. When if they were 30 years old, you would say that's domestic violence. Exactly. In extending this conversation a little bit, because you've talked about challenging the stereotypes and you've talked about positive representation of people with disabilities. Do we not also need to have conversations about material issues, housing, transportation, access to palliative care? Because in order to live a good quality of life, irrespective of your abilities, you do need access to all of these things. And perhaps this is true for the United States. It's certainly true for Canada people with disabilities are lagging behind when it comes to access to such basic things as housing and employment and education and uh, medical supports and care. So when we have a conversation about valuing the lives of people with disabilities, do we not also need to have a conversation about what makes a valuable life and what makes a good quality of life? I mean, when we value disabled people and our lives, that means that we value people enough to welcome into our community and make our communities accessible and yet we're still not doing that. Um, when we see bride sharing, say, welcome to our community, but you don't have to be accessible. That's okay. What are we saying to our entire community of people with physical disabilities who cannot get into ride sharing cars? As these ride sharing vehicles are reducing where public transportation goes. So the, the fixed route or other place, uh, buses don't go as far because ride sharing is taking over. Mm-hmm. That's problematic. When we don't fix the elevators to our buildings or to our public transit, then we're telling people with physical disabilities, nah, go away. When we don't provide attendant services to people with intellectual disabilities or developmental disabilities, you're saying, well, you're not valued in our community. When we don't hire people with disabilities because you have this stereotype in your mind that you're not as productive then you're saying that you don't value us. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. I say we need to change the way we look at it, I mean we need to change the way we think, and then we need to change our actions to follow suit. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Stephanie, it's been a really interesting conversation because I feel we've uncovered a lot of important issues and I hope the conversation will continue and I hope you'll come back. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Stephanie Woodworth, who is a disability advocate and attorney. Stephanie has long been an advocate for people with disabilities, and her website, Disability Details, provides information about disability law, disability access, and disability life. She joined us today to talk about the Disability Day of Mourning. It was a mixed bag in terms of the show, some moments of levity, but overall a very difficult show. I wanted to tell you that if you feel like you'd like to visit the website, which memorializes the victims of filicide, you can go to disability-memorial.org. We'll put that link on our website. I also wanted to say that it was a tough conversation, and it's a difficult website, the Disability Memorial website. It's actually a difficult website to look at, and uh, if you decide that after this conversation you need a bit of a breather, you're feeling a bit triggered, you can talk to some friends or family or reach out to the Canadian Suicide Prevention Line by calling one 456 4566 That's 1-833-456-4566. It's a 24-7 crisis line. And if you feel like you heard a few things in this interview that were upsetting for you, because I know I heard a few things in this interview that were upsetting for me, then I hope you'll reach out and get some support. But I really want to acknowledge that we need to create space for these difficult conversations. I am a big believer in telling positive stories and success stories about people with disabilities overcoming the odds. I'm not trying to advocate inspiration porn, but I do think we would all benefit from a a little bit of positivity in our life. But every so often, I like to tackle a tough situation here on the program. You might remember that interview we did earlier with David Wilkin about disability hate crime and today's interview. It really shows you that the more things change, the more things stay the same when it comes to people with disabilities and that many of the issues, exclusion, discrimination, bigotry, and even violence against people with disabilities are as salient today and as relevant today to talk about as they were 30 years ago. What I think is different today is that we have many more tools at our disposal as people with disabilities to change the conversation and to improve public perceptions and to raise awareness and find community with each other, whether it's social media, whether it's a meetup group, whether it's in you know finding spaces to to communicate with other people with disabilities, we have turned the corner in that I think there's a greater value placed on the lives of people with disabilities by people with disabilities themselves, where we don't just look for cures, where we don't just ask to be to have disability prevented, but we're really hoping that our lives can be wholesome and well-rounded. And it's on that note that I'd like to thank Stephanie Woodward for being our guest on The Pulse today. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanerol. Technical producer is Sam Robinson. And our manager is Andy Frank. But most of all, thank you for being a part of the conversation. And I hope you'll find us on Twitter at AMI Audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI to give your thoughts and perspectives on the program. You can also give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Please let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. If you prefer, you can write us an email, write to feedback at ami.ca. Whatever your preferred method of communication, I hope you will reach out to us. We are always eager to hear from you about your thoughts on our programming, any ideas you have for future shows, anything you like, you didn't like, we would love to be in the know. So thank you for making The Pulse a part of your day. This has been The Pulse on AMI-audio, and I've been your host, Juita Gupta. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy the rest of your day.
This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.